0: When I had cancer, I really felt like my body had betrayed me. And then when I found out I was pregnant with Hunter, literally the instant that I looked at the test and saw I was pregnant, I just felt like I felt healed. I felt like the body that had created cancer had healed and created this human life. And I couldn't live in fear of cancer and be a mother, you know, and for me. And so uh, that just started my path to just trying to, learn how to navigate the crisis in my life and not let it take over my life.
1: Sylvia and
0: Hi, I'm Sylvia Beckerman. Join
1: me today as I talk to an extraordinary woman who is changing the world
0: by making a difference in her life and the lives of those around her. Hi, I'm Lisa Bradshaw. I'm happy to be here with you today. I am the founder of a nonprofit called the Don't Wait Project, and I'm also the host of my own show called Life with Lisa Bradshaw, where I'm from in Wenatchee, Washington. I'm happy to be on Sylvia and Me.
1: Lisa, thank you so much. And we actually met in person, not on Zoom, a few weeks ago when you interviewed me for your show, Life with Lisa, and your Don't Wait Project, uh, your tour that you're doing. Uh, I would really like to get into some of the background, the things that got you started, because not only are you the founder of the Don't Wait Project, you're a mom, you're a cancer survivor, you're a widow, you're a storyteller. And some of the things that started you off from what I remember is a classroom and your parents not putting you, uh, making you skip a grade, uh, Rocky, oh yeah,
0: you watched my TED talk.
1: <laughs> Rocky, um, a typewriter with corrector tape in it. So why don't you? I think it's quite quite an interesting beginning.
0: Well, I think it began with the letters up on the wall in my kindergarten class, Mrs. Shulba's kindergarten class, and once I figured out words connected, you know, the letters connected the words and then the words connected sentences. And as I got older, I could make paragraphs and pages and eventually chapters. I felt like there was pretty much no limit to what I could share in storytelling. I also saw Rocky, the movie Rocky, when I was five in the theater, I just turned 50. And so I was, I remember it. And I remember not wanting to leave when the credits rolled. And my brother and I were just talking about the other day, he goes, you remember it was a Sunday and mom was at work. And so dad took us to the movies and my dad's like a hurry up and go guy, so when it was over. He's like, "Okay, hey, let's go," and I said, "Oh no, no, no!" <laughs> I, <did. laughs> I had to sit there a minute, and um, and then when the second movie came out, because you know back then when Sylvester Stallone was promoting Rocky, it was like you know Johnny Carson, and maybe it'd show up on the evening news. There wasn't all this access to the story behind it, and when Rocky the first one was coming out, we didn't know if it'd be a success. And then when Rocky II came out, I started, I was a little older and paying more attention to the conversations about how he got this movie made and what he went through to, to tell his story. And so he taught me at a young age, Sylvester Stallone and the Rocky character about what we're willing to endure to tell our story. And I couldn't have known the story I would have to tell. um, But I feel very strongly about the power of storytelling to help heal lives. And I also feel like. You know, if I lend my story and it helps someone else better live with their own, then I'm making good of some really hard stuff I've been through. So that's really the start, I would say. And I got my typewriter when I was eight. It was red and plastic and it had corrective ribbon. So I was too much of a perfectionist drawing in my journal. I would, if it didn't look neat, I'd rip the page out and start over. So that corrective ribbon let oh, me put words down that, yeah, I was pretty, pretty bad about that as a kid. Not that great about it now either, but typing is my thing. And you've had some traumatic um, events
1: happen in between there was an event, the birth of your son that you didn't even think could really happen. Can you talk
0: us through that timeline? Uh, So Wesley, my late husband, I met him when I was eight years old and he was 10 and we were neighbors and he was playing football with my brother and his friends. And I walked out on the porch with my other friend, neighbor, and I just saw him and I knew he'd be important to my life. That's the best I can explain it. And I had a big crush too. And um, we saw each other intermittently over the years. He had ended up moving back to Texas and I didn't see him for about five years. And then I spent a holiday with his family. Our parents were friends. And then I didn't see him again until I was 20. And uh, we fell in love during that time and I moved there and we got married and And right away, uh, we lost his father uh, within two years of getting married, uh, a year and a half of getting married. And then the next year I was diagnosed with cancer and I was 24. And one of the risks of the treatment that helped save my life was the risk of infertility and early menopause. So we didn't know if we'd be able to have children. And I always wanted to be a mom and I especially wanted to be the mother of Wesley's children. And um, so we waited, the doctor said to wait at least a year, two would be better. Just the threat of recurrence would be drastically reduced with each year we waited. So I thought maybe we should get on some adoption waiting lists or something that would be an option for us. And Wesley said, no, let's just, let's just hold on here. And so we waited two years to the month and found out three weeks later, I was pregnant with Hunter. And, uh, you know, I really felt at that point in my life, you know, when I had cancer, I really felt like my body had betrayed me. And then when I found out I was pregnant with Hunter, literally the instant that I looked at the test and saw I was pregnant, I just felt like I felt healed. I felt like the body that had created cancer had healed and created this human life. And I couldn't live in fear of cancer and be a mother, you know, and for me. And so uh, that just started my path to just trying to learn how to navigate the crisis in my life and not let it take over my life. Well, that showed strength that you wound
1: up going into that well ever since.
0: Yeah, there is a well. <laughs> it gets it gets low sometimes, you know, I don't live my life every day with this perfectly in mind, but I most definitely do my best to to live from a a don't wait point of view and losing Wesley especially taught me that. And you lost him, your son was about four years old. Yeah, my son, oh, he, had, he got, Wesley got sick the week of Hunter's fourth birthday and he died. Um, a, a, so he cleaned out an old cabinet in our garage that made him sick. And he was hospitalized many times throughout the year. And then the next year, a year to the anniversary of him cleaning the garage, he received a double lung transplant and he died six weeks later on Easter. So, our son turned five while Wesley was in the ICU after surgery. So, you and now have, he's 23.
1: You've had so. trage- tragedy, healing, tragedy. And yet, what you're doing right now is you're helping others tell their stories. What actually gave you that courage and that gumption to move ahead and do that? I think
0: a lot of it is making sure for one, that my, my son is very familiar with his father and also I couldn't, there isn't a life for me without Wesley. I couldn't imagine not having him. So he's in our lives still, you know, and we talk about him and the work I do is largely in honor of him and, and his memory. Um, so for me, it was it was the only way. And also, I started uh, hosting a radio show back in 2008. Wesley died in 2004. And I think starting to share the stories of others is what started to heal my own story. The focus was off of me so much, but yet I could have a conversation with someone like you who's been through her own hardship, and we can relate. And so these conversations become, you know, people come on my show or, or we have discussions and they're uncomfortable at first or think they don't have a story and then next thing you know it's 30 minutes later and 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 they realize they do. And it and doesn't matter if you travel the country and interview people or do what you're doing host a podcast if you are you're living your story whether you're telling it or not that's your way of telling it. You don't have to stand on a TED stage to do that. And so people can glean inspiration and you can be a cautionary tale or you can be you know an inspiration to people and I try to be the latter.
1: <laughs> well, as you said, everyone has a story, even though they may not realize it. Mm-hmm. Some are afraid to tell it. Some think it's too, you know, it's too minor to talk about. And that's why the ability to tell stories and kind of get people to open up and talk mm-hmm. and be able to have a conversation it's just, it's powerful. Mm -hmm. And you have four nouns that you uh, talk about. People, places, things, and ideas. Mm -hmm. Tell us how they kind of come into how you've done, where it relates to don't wait.
0: Well, I was writing my second book, Big Shoes, and it's, it's largely pretty much entirely based on Wesley's year long illness in the seven years after that. And I was up many nights writing. I set a four month deadline to finish that book, to start and finish it. And, um, I was really starting nearing the end, starting to think about the reader and, and how much some of Wesley's own family were be, would start to understand the magnitude of that year because if you didn't live in our home, you didn't know. My mom would be the only person I'd say that really gleaned it because she spent only three months of that year with my dad. The most, most of the time was with us helping with Hunter. And so I started thinking about the reader and their dedication, their empathy to the 382 pages of our story. And I woke up one morning about 5:30 in the morning. And I started thinking, well, what if I started a project or created an idea or planted a seed, whatever it was going to become. I didn't know yet to get people not to wait to do what's important because I told Hunter very early on my, our son, when he was five, you know, there's a really big reason why your dad isn't here. And I have no idea what that is. It'll be the first thing I learned when I pass out of this life. Uh, but in the meantime, it's my job as your mom to bring whatever greatness we can Not in spite of losing him, but because of it. And so the Don't Wait Project really became a way to say, let's not treat it like a bucket list. You know, if I died tomorrow, what would I do? Because I always say, like, you and I wouldn't be sitting here talking. We would be with our family. We'd be doing something (laughs) completely different. So instead, let's assume we have a hundred years. What are we doing with that time? And I've interviewed thousands of people over the last decade plus, about 12 years now, 14 years now, actually. And I just feel like our values help determine our story. And if we can put value in the nouns in life, like really make them verbs, right? The people and the places and the things and the ideas, those are important. And we give up on them along the way. Sometimes, you know, we get too tired, too sad, too busy, too comfortable. And we have to revisit what we wanted for ourselves. And hopefully that's community and hopefully that's giving back and hopefully it's taking care of ourselves. Um, and just, I, I truly believe if we take care of our own little corner of the world, you know, the world gets a lot better. Yes, it does. And that's the whole
1: thing that people don't understand. If we do take care of our little corner of ourselves and those around us, right. we make a big difference Right, because that's what you've done and from there it's evolved into something larger touching more people and that's a, another thing that people don't understand that one touch goes to another goes to another and so on and so forth yeah the ripple
0: effect and i like to think that that's that the ripple started with wesley and so anyone who hears our story or hears a story that i've helped share it all goes back to that's the way I keep Wesley on the planet. There's just no other way for me. I still could tear up now and it's been 18 years. It's just, it's just the way it is.
1: Yes. And that's what a lot of people don't understand where they'll say, it's been 18 years. Why are you tearing up now? It's been so long. And, and
0: I know you. Have- I don't think anyone would dare say that to me, but maybe behind my back.
1: <laughs> but you have right? you, you so- have another big event happening. Your son Hunter yes. isn't he off to college?
0: He's graduated in May. He's oh, already okay. out in the world. Yeah, he graduated okay. in May. Um, yeah, I gave my TED talk when he was in college, and I have to say, for the parents out there who are empty nesters and struggling with it. Oh, that was painful. It was really a hauntingly familiar grief when he left home. It was the end of something that I couldn't bring back. Nothing would be the same, you know, and and yet it was this happy time. So I felt pretty guilty about feeling that way. And I kept a lot of it to myself, but I would say clinical depression probably for, for the good months after he first left home, I hid it from him. I hid it. Well, i learned how to do that, which isn't the healthiest way, way to go about it, but I did get the help I needed again. Um, I have people in my pocket who I pay money to listen to me talk over the years when I need help. Um, And, but that was a time when I, I did have to get help again. And, and, you know, it's the chin up thing, but boy, it gets hard sometimes, you know.
1: Look, you're talking about it now.
0: Yeah. You're helping people
1: by being able to talk about it, to be out there and say that you know, you were depressed, you know, that it hit you again and you went and found help and now you can talk about it. Yeah. So right now by saying that you're helping quite a number of people who, you know, feel guilty about it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm a a huge proponent of getting the help you need, you know, and, and I, I believe too, in. I had a grief counselor and then I, and then I went in a different direction to a very no nonsense um, counselor that I have that he's, he's really blunt with me. And, you know, I I can tend to take over a situation and I need someone who won't let me do that. And so, um, you know, I, I see him intermittently, but I have his number and I can get into him whenever I need him. And I think it's important to have that set up in our lives. You know, we might not need it for, I can go years without talking to him. But some trigger like Wesley and not, you know, like uh, the rites of passage he misses when Hunter graduates high high school and then college or a big baseball game he won. You know, there's, I never know what the trigger is. You know, I never know what the trigger is.
1: You've also coined uh, empathetic healthcare practice. Can you describe exactly what you mean by that?
0: Well, I, I do a lot of work in patient advocacy now, and I have to be honest, this has been um, work in my life I've avoided. I'm just going to be honest. The idea of being in people's crisis has not appealed to me at all because what ended up happening after my, after Wesley passed away several years later, my mom was sick and she was misdiagnosed and it took all that I learned surviving cancer, navigating Wesley's death. It saved my mother's life. No doubt about it. It helped save her life. And when that happened, I thought, okay, I'm getting that nudge, like you're supposed to do something with this. You know, God's telling me what what, what are you doing? <laughs> like this, you could help people in this way. And so so I I speak at conferences, I give a keynote that's largely about our story and the and the providers who have been in our lives and the good ones and the not so good ones. And um, I try to teach people that you don't have to, you know, have a super best friend relationship with your surgeon, but you better make sure your primary care physician cares about you. You don't have to love the nurse in a hospital stay, but you better make sure that person wants to come in and out of the room when you're in there because somebody else has always already given them a hard time down the hall. And so I've just taken all of the stories of the last 25 years between my cancer, Wesley's illness, and my mom's and created what I, what I call empathetic healthcare. And, and there's many facets to it, but it's, It's just trying to educate people also about building a team you trust and taking responsibility for your care. And if you have a physician that you don't trust or respect, then you better get a new one because the most important thing I think in healthcare, top five things is compliance and how can you comply with people you don't trust? So that's the message usually that I try to get across is if we build a team we trust, it's like signing up for chemo. I was 24 years old. I was terrified. And then when I finished chemo, I had to do radiation and I was really terrified of that. I mean, I'd seen the movie Silkwood, you know, I was, I was afraid. And, um, but I made a very specific decision and I stuck by that decision and I followed all the rules and 26 later, years later, I'm here. And I just think, you know, I I've interviewed people who've had organ transplants for 15, 20 years, people who've overcome things multiple times, illnesses, cancers, and they're here because, you know, you can't keep an organ for 15 years if you're not compliant. You just can't. Exactly. Yeah. Well,
1: I, I mean, I'm basically speechless because what you said, <laughs> no, that's fine. Uh, believe me, I find my words somehow, but <laughs> what you said is so important and yeah, being compliant, it's just like anything else. You, you break a leg. If you don't do what you're supposed to do, you're not going to get back in shape. And if you don't go in um, being, uh, being an advocate for yourself or surrounding yourself with people who are going to be that advocate for you, good things aren't going to happen. Mm-hmm. You have to take ownership. Yes. And it can health. improve
0: outcomes. It really can. Yeah. It can save lives. Not everyone can be saved. I know no. this. I worked just as hard for Wesley as I did my mom. But, but what I know for sure is I'm, I was able to leave both of those situations knowing I was heard, knowing we left no stone unturned. And my mom is te- here. She made a full recovery. It's six years later. Sometimes I look at her and I still can't believe she's here. So, um, that's when, you know, and, and I was sitting in the ICU with my dad, my mom was fine one day and coughing blood the next, and I won't get into all the details, but it got scary really fast. And she was in the ICU that night and I was there with my dad and my parents had been married by then, you know, 50, 47 years or something. And, and I just, all the familiars talk about a trigger, all the familiar sounds of the ICU and the, the hushed people in the hallway and the monitors and the drips and the uh, it was overstimulating for me and i said to my dad that night i said mom doesn't want me here she was in a, a medically induced coma for the night and i said she doesn't she doesn't want me here she wants me to be with hunter at home this is your job this is your in sickness and health this is your for better for worse and if i do it for you you and mom will miss something you're supposed to learn not just about Taking care of her, but in your marriage, and your life, in this path, in the world. So I'm not going to do it for you, but I'll teach you every single thing I know, and that's the conversation we had that night. And if I can teach my dad, <laughs> that's what made me feel he's a very smart man. But you know, he wasn't used to. He's not of the generation where he's going to learn a whole lot from someone telling him how to do something. But he did. He really listened and he really learned. And now they they. Pull me in when they need my help, but otherwise they take care of themselves. And so that's when I really started. That's the work I'll be doing for the next five or ten years. Is really just I have some ideas and some things that I'm working on that I think will allow me to reach out to the masses, but not be in their crisis. Give them these tools, yeah, exactly, and then keep going with my life.
1: So let's get back to the Don't Wait project. Okay. It's a non- it's a nonprofit. How did you go about even starting this, and and why? Because on the Don't Wait project, you've interviewed so many people. You've taken a cinematographer. You've traveled throughout the United States. You did a tour in 2018, 19, and then you started another one just recently, which you just recently finished.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Tell me, which I am very proud to be able yes. to say that. Yes, I'm one of the people that will be <laughs> in it.
0: Um, yeah, I appreciate that. I really, I, I, I really enjoyed talking with you. And it's such a fascinating thing to learn of all these stories. My goal is always to interview multiple people with multiple stories. And hopefully someone watching will find the one that speaks to them and, uh, the don't wait project. So in 2008, I started my radio show and I, I I had been on Rachel Ray and Oprah radio and in magazines and things for a, a different company that I had years before. And so, um, when my first book came out, there was a man named John St. Augustine who had a radio show. And I was on that show multiple times of all the shows I've done over the years. He's one of the few people, you know, I'm still in touch with. And he was producing, um, Oprah radio, I think when it was on XM back then. So I flew out and did a couple shows there and he was saying, why aren't you a host? Why aren't you, why aren't you doing something? And I said, and I told myself, Okay. In a year, I'll have a radio show and a year went by and another month, another two months. And this was back in 2008 before the don't wait project. And so I ended up going to, um, look one day thinking, okay, this has been a year and two months when, you know, get on the ball, Lisa. So I looked in our local, I don't know, I probably the yellow pages back then. I don't know how I found it. Maybe the internet. I'm not sure. 2008, 2008. Yeah. Internet. 2008. And I found a talk station here in our community that was like 90 years old terrestrial radio you know real am talk radio and so i reached out to the gm and he said yes can you be here at 10 tomorrow and i thought oh no so i quickly put together a demo and i didn't i hadn't interviewed anyone all i had was you know some good interviews that i'd done with other people where i'd been on the receiving end of that and um I don't know. He summed me up early in the meeting and he had had an idea to bring someone in to do community relations and just make sure we're out in the community that someone's attending all the events and partnering businesses with nonprofits. And he created that position for me. We created it together. And then he dangled the carrot of the show for me. (laughs) (laughs) So I started hosting the show then. And so when I had the idea three years later for the Don't Project, I now had all these wonderful relationships with all these businesses and these people in the community that I'd worked with and partnered with over the last three years that I went to them with a one sheet and said, I have this idea and I need help funding it. What, what do you say? And they all but one said yes. So I raised thousands of dollars to... It ended up being, I formed a publishing company. I'm proud to say I self-published my book. You look at it and you don't know it. I did all the things, hired a designer. Um, you know, the cover designer, the inside designer, hired an editor, started my own imprint. And the book belonged to the Don't Project. All the profits go to the Don't Project. And they always have. And meanwhile, I also was able to get the trademarking and I mean, everything done under that umbrella of launching a nonprofit organization and doing it with the book. And it was this community that did it. And now it's town Toyota here in our community that sponsors the tours, you know, that I get to go and travel and interview all of these people. And it's just grown from that one sheet and an idea the community trusted me with to my getting to meet you in Connecticut well,
1: I'm very happy about that. Can I ask? Did you always, um, when you on this one sheet, was it always going to be a nonprofit?
0: Yes, always. I had wanted to start a nonprofit for a long time. Um, I had some ideas early on, and yes, and honestly, more and more, I wanted to to found my own after working with so many fantastic nonprofits, national, nationally and locally here in our community you know, after being on steering committees or helping with event planning, just knowing the importance of it. And I try to focus a lot on that in my work too, making sure that I offer visibility to those folks as well.
1: Well, I am so glad you did. Cause as you just said, we got to meet Yes, and we meet so many different people. And mm-hmm. that's the thing, to not pigeonhole yourself into a specific genre or subtopic or something. You're able to bring out things and people that you didn't even, uh, we, we started off by saying that people didn't even know. And sometimes we wind up finding pieces of ourselves in, in some of those
0: stories. I'm giving a talk to a group of high school seniors, you know, about to go out into the world. And all I wanted to do was be an author. And I figured out real fast that unless I'm Brene Brown or somebody, I'm, I'm not going to be able to feed my kid and feed my soul and as an author. So I found little ways, you know, I call them buckets of passion. This is the, if, if it feeds my kid and feeds my soul. Of course, my kid's off the payroll now. He graduated college, but <laughs> You know, when he was growing up, it was really important to me to still be home when he got home from school every day and and all of these different ideas I had that Wesley and I had about how we wanted to raise him. And so um, I feel like having those opportunities to Tell stories. Figure out what I wanted to do with my life. All the forks in the road. That's what I want to share with these students. You know, if I'd stuck to the idea, I mean, now we have a friend, Wendy Walker, who stuck to the idea that she wanted to be a common author and she wanted that to be her job. And she and I discussed that as well, but our best-selling author friend, that um, I didn't want it bad enough. I wanted to be a storyteller. It didn't have to be through books. Now I've written a couple, and I'll write probably a couple more, but. I just want people to understand that you can start off thinking you want to be one thing or do one thing. And as long as you're willing to take those forks in the road and take a hiatus, if you have to take a pause, if you feel overwhelmed or you have questions about what's next for you, but most definitely know that there, it, nothing's set in stone. Every idea I had, I, you know, the first book I wrote, didn't matter if I made any money. Wesley was paying the mortgage. I was pretty okay with that. You know, I was really okay with the roles that we'd set up for ourselves. And then I was a widowed single mom. All of a sudden I had to figure it out very quickly too. Mm -hmm. Yes.
1: Lisa, thank you so much. Where can people get more information about you and the don't wait project and life with Lisa and everything you're doing?
0: The easiest place is my website, uh, Lisa Bradshaw.com. And then I'm on Instagram life with Lisa Bradshaw. Well, Lisa,
1: again, it's been such a great pleasure meeting you and and, and and talking again. Yes, thank thank you. you. Keep up the good work yourself. (laughs) Thanks. Thank you for joining me today. If you liked what you heard, please share it with another person you think would be interested. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. This has been a Life of Prey production.